Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. I'm Cindy Howes. Oh man, exciting times today on Basic Folk because Ellis Paul, the one and only. This has been a long time coming. The Maine native is famous for helping establish the Boston songwriter sound in the late 80s, 90s, and 2000s. He grew up on a potato farm and became a national track star. Ellis started learning and playing guitar after an injury sidelined him. He began seeking out open mics and came across Club Passim in Harvard Square, Cambridge, where he now holds the record of the most shows played there ever. We talk about the early days, playing over 200 shows a year, Woody Guthrie, living with Dupuytren syndrome, and how that has affected his playing. Ellis Paul has been a favorite of mine for a long time, and it was great to be able to prepare for this interview and to listen to all his songs again, including his latest album, The Storyteller's Suitcase. We actually talk about a couple of standouts on that album, including a song where he explains the afterlife to his five-year-old daughter, which, oof, Ellis Paul, nice work. Uh, thanks for listening, and hope you enjoy our conversation. We're going to take a listen to that song I was just talking about, from his new album. Here's Ellis Paul, The Innocence and the Afterlife, and then we'll get to our conversation on Basic Folk. This is my true life story of karma and coincidence of the afterlife and innocence of a child in my father's ghost. My father slipped into the sweet forever after Surrounded by tears and laughter He stepped into the great unknown Into the afterlife Oh, the mysterious afterlife all right, Ellis Paul, here we go. Thanks for talking to me today. I'm happy to be here. I've been uh, waiting for a long time to have a chance to do this because I've, I've heard a few of the interviews you've done and they're great. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah. Um, you were born and raised in northern Maine, up near the Canadian border, and grew up on a potato farm. What was your hometown like and what is the history of your family and that potato farm? Because it runs... A few centuries back, right? It does, yeah. Uh, I consider uh, Presque Isle, Maine to be my hometown. It's right in the middle of Aroostook County. And northern Maine is, it's not like what you think of when you think of Maine. It's its rolling country trees and potato farms. There's no ocean anywhere. Is it like secret Ireland? It Well, kind of, yeah. Without the drama of, uh, you know, the landscape. It's more rolling hills like upstate New York, Vermont. It has that kind of vibe and but it's not lighthouses and lobster boats. It's tractors and trees pretty much for miles and miles. So yeah, I grew up there, a uh, family farm, uh, which we just put up for sale, actually. It's in Washburn, Maine. Um, That's a big deal. It is. Yeah, we owned it since the 1860s. Uh, a relative named Wesley Plissy served in the Civil War, and he was given that land as part of his you know, payment for serving in the Civil War. So it's been in the family for a long time, but we no longer farm it. And my mom is actually the principal owner now, and she's in assisted care. So we're, we're we're getting rid of it in order to help pay for some of her expenses. So, but yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting life. I grew up in Presque Isle. My grandparents owned the farm at that time, and 
you know, I spent a lot of time just picking rocks out of the field and then picking potatoes and, and doing it for various farmers, and including my grandfather. So it was a, a lot of hard labor. Have you and Susan Warner had conversations about farming? Yeah, we have. Uh, she's a, I think she was on a dairy farm or a pig farm. I can't remember which, but she lived, grew up in Iowa, similar kind of circumstances. But, as, you know, I, I feel like it was more of a small town upbringing more so than like a, a farm upbringing. Big farm, I, yeah. I still lived in town, but, you know, was there every weekend working when I needed to be in. How often did potatoes come into your home directly? Like, I mean, it was the family business, but what were your feelings about potatoes? Um, and what are they like now? <laughs> yeah, well, my my father ended up being the state of Maine potato commissioner. It's like the government position that oversees the production and promotion of Maine potatoes. And he was actually a potato scientist. So he, wow. he came up, he invented hybrids of potatoes and did research on potatoes throughout my childhood. So if I wasn't on our family farm, I was floating around with him, like helping him do all of his experiments and science stuff. And when he was in the government job, you know, helping him put labels on things and stuff in envelopes and that kind of stuff. So potatoes were like, it was a daily thing. We had them on the plate in every variety of potato you can imagine. Potato pancakes, potato candy, you know, French fries, tater tots, <laughs> baked potatoes, mashed potatoes, you know, just it goes on. My mother kind of disguised the fact that it was happening, but it was pretty much the only thing we ate with a couple other things, you know. Right. What was your favorite potato dish? Oh, the favorite potato. I just like a great baked potato, honestly. Yeah. And mashed is is great. They're all they're all great. It's just you know, as uh, as a kid, getting it every single day. I think you at some point you just you feel like you're being tortured. Mm. <laughs> so I did take a break from them once I got out of the house, but um, but oh, now yeah. they're pretty routine in my life. So what was it like for you to work on the farm, and how do you think that experience shaped your personality? Wow. Um, well, there's a lot of isolation working on a farm. You know, the, you see these farmers out in the fields doing a lot of the work themselves because they, you know, they're on tractors and they use mechanics to do their job. And, um, you know, some of my best memories of just like pulling a truck out in the middle of the field, filling the back of it with rocks because we have to, you have to clear the, the fields every summer of stones because that's, that messes up the machinery and stuff. So, uh, just being out there alone, you know, and just nothing but shorts on and, and just working from like nine in the morning till five at doing night. Doing the rocks. Doing the rocks, yeah. And the isolation of that. But, you know, I got to know my grandfather pretty well. And uh, I have a couple good stories about the time with him that I spent there. And um, so it means a lot in hindsight. But I think the the isolation of doing a job by yourself and that lines up pretty nicely with being a folk musician. Did that translate to loneliness or just something that you got used to? Uh, maybe a little bit. You know, I've always been someone that functions pretty well in my head. I think folk music is what brought me out of myself. I, I think I was pretty shy uh, when I was 20, 21. But by the time um, I was 30, I was a raging narcissist like most, <laughs> like most folk singers are. So you didn't start listening to folk music seriously until you were a little bit older in college. Um, and when you were younger, I read that you listened to Top 40 Radio. But where else was music in your house growing up? And how was music treated in your family? I come from a very, I would say, a very musical family. Like we would, uh, we weren't afraid to sing in front of each other. There was no embarrassment in that. So if we were running down the highway in the car with my dad, he, he would frequently just break into a song, uh, usually something from the fifties, you know, and then we would all chime in. So the, the music was just present all the time. And, and, uh, you know, they were very, very supportive around my creativity, uh, in my, in my teens. Um, and then when reality kicked in and I was 25 and I was quitting my job to start doing this, of course they were freaking out and, telling me to slow down and stop and think about grad right. school and all these things. And uh, so they did try and shut it down a little bit, which I think is a normal parental thing because, you you know, you're, you're worried about your kid and you want them to do better than you did. And, and they were afraid that I wouldn't be able to pull off a living doing it. Wow. Yeah. It just must have been at some point after it because it just seems like your career after a while just took off that they like couldn't deny that 
this was yeah this was destiny it was a nice thing especially you know there there were a few movies that were starting to kick in that were going to be you know big hollywood movies and my my music was in them and so that gave them you know their perception of the music they they just weren't they're not of our world our folk community mm. at, at all you know they're republican they are they're on the other side of the the aisle on almost everything and and uh I'm sure they were looking at me like I was an alien at times and they didn't have an understanding of, of, you know, the folk music thing. My father thought if he said a song out loud into a room that I would be able to play it with my guitar, he, he, you know, he would say, Hey, play the Sinatra song. And I, you know, I would be like, I have no idea how to play that. Um, and I think, you know, getting songs in movies and checks that had a comma in it, all of those things <laughs> were important landmark <laughs> things. And trust me, once once I had success and they came out to shows and, you know, I brought them to the Red Sox game that I sang the national anthem at. And they came to a couple of shows at the Somerville Theater that were sold out in Boston. And that finally calmed them down and they started to get that, you know, he's going to be okay. And then eventually, mm. I'm, I think I'm, you know, probably even right now making more money than my parents did growing up. So yeah. uh, it's it's been it's been great. So let's go back to the 1960s. Uh, can you talk about your mom's TV show? Oh, my God. How did you find this stuff? This I is just amazing. I read everything. <laughs> yeah, my mother had a little local TV show, you know, on life at home and, you know, eating well. And How do you say the name of your county? Aroostook. Aroostook Homemaker. Aroostook Homemaker. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny that she was making a TV show about being a homemaker when she was like a high up potato executive well my dad was yeah she was uh i guess she was a dietitian is what her training was coming out of college so and you know in those years in college they were stressing whole mac as you know what a woman was supposed to fortunately now y'all can be doctors lawyers and hopefully vice presidents and uh (laughs) you know but the box was limited back then so i'm glad that she did that though it was a good way to, for her to get out of herself. And um, she had a good career as well as a dietitian up in Maine and in the Midwest. We lived in the Midwest for a little while. Whereabouts? So, both in Minnesota and in North Dakota, which is fertile potato country at Red River Valley. So Fargo and East Grand Forks, Grand Forks in those areas. I spent six years as a Midwesterner. Then we moved back to Maine. You were a track star. You were a state champion, and you traveled all over the country for competitions. Where did your interest in running come from? And again, like, when did you start? And what is the history of like athletes in your family? There's uh, no history of athletics in my family. Um, I think my dad might have played basketball. He was upset when I told him I wasn't going to try out for the seventh grade basketball team or eighth grade basketball team because oh, dad, band was getting in the way with trumpet, right? Yeah, tr- trumpet. Yeah, and he looked at like, I mean, what's wrong with you? Because you know, basketball was the big sport where I grew up. They didn't have football team because the ground is rock hard in in October, so you can't play football in Northern Maine. Otherwise, it's like playing football on concrete. Oh, geez. So they don't have football teams. Um, they have soccer teams, but basketball is the big sport. But yeah, I, uh, I said, no, you know, I could do track uh, in the spring because that doesn't interfere with any band stuff or stage band stuff. And I could do cross country in the fall because it's over by the time all the band stuff really starts. So I did that. And, um, you know, there are these presidential fitness things that you do. When you're in like sixth grade, you know, how many pull-ups can you do and and how many sit-ups and how fast can you run a quarter mile? How fast can you run a mile? And um, I was off the charts in the running stuff. So that showed me that uh, this is a sport that my body was meant to do. Like I c- couldn't do many pull-ups, sit-ups, <laughs> you know, lifting weight and nothing. But I was always miles ahead of everybody running. And um, so I knew I had an aptitude based on those tests. So when I got to, to high school, I, I joined the high school team and I was immediately the best runner on the team, even as a freshman. And and um, eventually won states. I finished second in the country in cross country when I was 16, 15, 16 years old for, you know, a national championship kind of thing and got scholarship offers. And, and it's still part of my daily life. You know, I still follow the sport really carefully and um, 
still jog. What's what's your event? It was like the 5K, uh, you know, mile 5K, 10K. So you were able to get a track scholarship to Boston College. And what was the move like from small town northern Maine to, to Boston? It was pretty smooth. Um, BC is out in the suburbs of Boston. So it wasn't like I was in it didn't feel like an, a real urban environment out there. It felt pretty safe. But it took me a while to get my bearings and, and on every front, both like, you know, academically and and running wise. I was going on to a team suddenly where I wasn't. I mean, I was one of the, the top five runners, but uh, it wasn't necessarily going to be the number one guy there. So it's, um, you know, there was there was some teeter tottering and losing a little bit of interest and focus on the sport and just doing it sort of a, as a part of college, not as the reason I'm in college, but as sort of a mm-hmm. secondary reason to figuring out who I am and what I want to be. You were uh, sidelined by an injury in your junior year and were given a guitar. I'm wondering like what the connection was like to the instrument and how has your relationship been like with the guitar over time? Oh, it was, there was magic right off the bat. I think anyone that is lucky enough to be able to walk through a few chords fairly quickly knows that what a gift it is to hear music and play music and the vibration of the guitar is going into your body. It's going into your ears. You're holding it against your body as you're playing. So there's all sorts of magic in that relationship. And it's, uh, you know, at this point, it's become an extension of my body. And I feel like you know how when you're turning a car and you're just probably millimeters away from another car when you're pulling into a space or something, but you know your car and the dimensions of it so well that it feels like an extension of who you are. That's that's how a guitar can be. And um, it took me a long time to, to get it to that point. And uh, I, I learned how to play by writing my own songs. I learned maybe 10 songs by other people and I started writing uh, and if there's any one thing that I could go back and change, that would be the first thing. Uh, it would, would be to learn a hundred songs instead of ten, so I had a better chord vocabulary. And mm. you know, it's one reason why I'm enjoying this um, this time off during the pandemic because I'm I'm learning songs in my isolation here at the house. I'm learning how to play all these songs I've never learned how to play before, and um, it's really really been fun. What have you been learning? Well, last week I did, um, I have a show on, on Facebook every week. It's called Ellis Paul's Traveling Medicine Show, and there's always a theme. Last week's theme was The Wizard of Oz. Uh, so I learned Over the Rainbow, and I wrote my own arrangement to it, you know, like throwing in chords that were unique to my version. And I learned how to play If I Only Had a Brain on the banjo. And then I learned <laughs> to play Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, and Tin Man by the band America, both were both were hits in the seventies. So I did those two songs, and then two songs that were related to it. And um, you know, and when else would I learn those songs? Right. Except, except now. And uh, what a gift! The chord changes are, are so beyond what I would ever do. And I'm hoping that by playing them and learning them, and maybe even recording them, I'm thinking of doing an album of some of these cover songs. Uh, that it'll seep into my own music yeah. after the pandemic's over, and that's that's the and I'll be a better guitar player, better songwriter. Can you talk about singing as a young person? What did you think of your voice when you first started singing? Were you a naturally good singer? You have such a remarkable voice. Is it a thing that runs in your family? <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, you know, whether it's good or not, it's like you know, it's whether you like amber ale or pale ale, you know, or an IPA or or margarita. It's just a matter of taste, I guess. But I had an unnaturally high voice coming up in my early 20s. You know, I had a pretty high range. I don't know if it was four octaves or not, but it was definitely over three. Um, But I sounded like a choir boy. There was no character to it. The thing that enamored me about singing was just the feeling of it. And, you know, in those early years, just sitting in a pretty confined space and listening to myself as I was singing in that that remarkable thing that happens when notes are going out and they're coming back in. And especially if you're in like a sort of echoey cavernous space, um, it just felt good. It was healing and soothing and pretty to my ears, but it took me a long time to get out of the choir boy thing and sing with character and 
And now that I'm in my 50s and I've lost that top end range and mm. even my speaking voice shows the, the damage of 5,000 shows, you know, the scratchiness mm-hmm. and the airiness that you're hearing. This is not the voice I talked with when I was 25. This is the 55-year-old me talking. And uh, I can't comfortably do a lot of the songs I wrote back then without you know, moving the capo position off the guitar entirely. Like, <laughs> I literally can drop keys now four steps in order to sing some of that older stuff. But when I'm writing now for myself, I have to write for the voice I have presently. And uh, so I think the people that love my voice love it heartily. It goes right between their eyes. Losing an octave for a singer, that must be like a pretty big deal. So what was that grieving process or, you know, what was that loss like for you? It's been tough, emotionally tough. Um, you know, the, the saving grace of it is that, you know, Tom Waits and, and Bob Dylan and Woody Guthrie all who sing like a door hinge mm-hmm. and managed to do okay with good songs. And, uh, you know, in me accepting that I don't have the tone and I don't have the control So I'm not like a violin player that can do things that I could have done really, really beautifully and so easily that I took for granted, by the way. Um, And had I taken better care of my voice in my 40s, I wouldn't be in the position I am now. So yeah, it's been tough. And listening back to some of these older recordings and hearing myself do things that I know I can't do anymore, it's it's been hard. You know, and again, it's like... um, you just write with what you have. And so the songs going forward, I'm hopeful about them and I want to write more and more and more because I feel like I have another 20 years on this career of mine. And, uh, but this is going to be the voice I have. So, you know, I just have to write and find beauty within it and find ways to maximize the emotional content of it, even though I don't have the tools that I had when I was 30 and even 40. So when you uh, started playing guitar, you learned 10 songs, but then you also really started seriously listening to folk music for the first time around that time, like listening to a station in Boston that was playing all these um, great folk hits. What was that process like for you and what resonated with you? I think hearing people like Joni Mitchell and Dylan and Neil Young uh, you know, at a time it was the, it was the mid early eighties, I guess, probably mid eighties at that point. So all these classic hit stations started appearing across the country, playing songs from the sixties and early seventies and Boston had one. And, um, so I was hearing Dylan and Neil Young in, in a different kind of context. I still like, you know, Neil Young can stop me in my tracks. I just love, I love his voice. He just makes you focus in and you're taken someplace. And uh, so, yeah, it really moved me. And that's kind of what I wanted to be. Hmm. I don't think I ended up being that. Uh, You know, I think people are into me for different reasons. But um, but yeah, he really moves me. He'd probably be my desert island choice above the Beatles and above all the other bands. I think I'd probably take him. I like that for you. (laughs) (laughs) Who would you take? One artist? Yeah, just one oh, yeah. person. I would take the band Heim. Cool. I can't blame you. I mean, and then if it's a person, I would take Bob Dylan. Yeah, Dylan would be up in my top five for sure. But um, but I like Neil Young, just the this, this tone of his voice. I don't know. I, just, uh, I could hear it every day. I'm not get tired of it. That's true. All right, let's talk about Woody Guthrie. Yeah. You have a uh, lifelong admiration for Woody Guthrie, you have the famous tattoo on your shoulder. Uh, you were drawn to the social consciousness in his work, and you said he would write visually, painting with words. He doesn't dictate, which is what bad folk singers do. Can you expand on that and how Woody was a witness in his writing and how you strive to do the same? Well, Woody was a reporter, you know, and... um he wasn't about presenting fake news. He was about just, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you what happened. And you're going to come to your own conclusions about. He was never heavy-handed morally. Um, you knew a stance going in. If you knew were a fan of his, of course, you're going to know that he's, 
he's swinging from the, the social justice, you know, commie side of things, uh, so to speak. But uh, even with a song as simple as This Land is Your Land, it's about painting a picture, creating an argument. So you come to the conclusion without it being told to you that the world is unjust for these people, that these people need help. They're in a situation that's broken and it needs to change. And um, he was a master of that and an unerring master of it. He, every time he picked up the pen, he went there. And um, which, you know, for my other favorite songwriters like Bob Dylan and that crew, the, the Beatles and all, they were often just trying to write the swimming pool. You know, they, they had commercial aspirations that weren't about education, that weren't about making the world a better place. It was about making their lives better. <laughs> you know, so they would they would make some decisions that were and which are totally fine, by the way. I'm all, all for all of it. But Woody just like commitment to the truth and to social justice and to consistently, you know, go after the making the world a better place. It just was very inspiring for me. Not that I follow that path, by the way, um, but it's what I love about him. Mm. One important opportunity you got was to open for a legendary musician, Bill Morrissey, who became kind of a mentor for you. And in particular, um, this sounds like something I would do, but I was I was happy to read that you were like really proactive in getting Bill to share music with you in the form of in like the most influential folk music created um how did the music he shared with you impact your musicality there's there's no like school you can go you can say the berkeley college of music or any college of music is is a great thing for you to do if you want to become a musician songwriter and all that um but the truth is there's nothing that can show you how to be an artist uh there's no real school for that it's just you you only can learn to be that thing by doing that thing and by being around other people who are really good at it and learn from them. And having Bill in the neighborhood was like having Van Gogh in the neighborhood. (laughs) And uh, you could knock on his door and uh, whatever state that he might be in, um, he, he wanted to share, he wanted to share knowledge and he wanted to, he wanted to make you laugh and he wanted to make you think. And uh, he was just a very giving, giving guy. And he came to see my show and he, you know, he asked me if uh, I'd be willing to let him produce my first album. And I was like, yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so we, we basically lived together for a few months, you know. Um, and he brought in Patty Griffin and he brought in Duke Levine and all these people I didn't know that he knew uh, and who became friends of mine and supporters of mine. And um, it was just a beautiful thing. I mean, and... Uh, you know, I've made a vow since that time to do the same thing for young people coming up. Made it part of my mission as a musician to mentor people actively. Like, I don't know that Bill was actively seeking me out. He really wanted to produce somebody he thought was great. And uh, I think he had as much interest in learning how to be a producer as he did working specifically with me. It could have been almost anybody, but... Uh, and he was just such, he was really the best songwriter in the country at that point in my mind. He could do things with a lyric and a concept of a song that I only dreamed about. And, um, and I learned a lot both by just the example of him where he wasn't trying to do anything, but he was just being Bill. And then, uh, by the stuff that he shared with others, you know, about Tim Harden in particular, uh, he turned me on to Tim Harden and, hmm. Just that one thing alone was enough to make me say thank you. And um, and then his experience coming up and Tom Rush and all these other people that he'd been involved with throughout his life and hearing their, the story of them and who they are and finding out about their music and how he put together an album. You know, he, he basically produced my record and how he chose the players, what he said about the players and who they were. And it brought Johnny Cunningham in, who was probably the best Celtic fiddle player in the world. And so he just basically just kicked, doors open for me that, you know, it was like the difference between being in the Wizard of Oz and that black and white moment to the opening of the doors. And like, uh, you know, the Technicolor comes in and Bill's the guy that opened the door for me. He was like the king of the munchkins. (sighs) Oh my God. (laughs) That's a great visual. (laughs) 
Someone that you have a very special friendship, and I think it's like so nice uh, as like a fan of both of you and watching your you know interactions and friendships over the years is Vance Gilbert. Yeah. Um, and you guys performed together, written songs about each other, recorded an album. What makes your connection to Vance so strong? And also maybe how do you make each other's music better? Oh, the, the personal connection is I just love him. He's he's funny as hell. He's insightful. Uh, I met him probably in the early 90s. I was out of college for a few years. He showed up at this kind of like, by saying gorilla open mic, I mean, really, it was it was held in this foyer of this little building in, in Boston and illegally. Like, it <laughs> like wasn't, a coat closet. <laughs> kind, kind of, yeah. Like you walk up the stairs and there were, there's a room and it's a fairly large room. And then there's doors all around the room with that had little businesses, like little newspapers and, you know, little, uh, mm. little comic book places. And, and, but you know, just a small, probably, I don't know, maybe 70 feet by 40 feet. Um, it was like a giant hallway really. And, and we would gather there. Uh, for an open mic and uh, Vance came in one night, came up the stairs and I'd been going to it every week and, and watching him just knock everybody flat. Cause he had a <laughs> skill set that no one, no one really had. He was playing in jazz clubs. So he, you know, he was all over the fretboard and he sang like an angel and he was funnier than everybody in between songs. And um, so we became friends that night and we had this sort of shared experience of walking up the, the ladder of a career together um, he got signed to Rounder Records. I got si signed to Rounder Records. He started touring with, uh, you know, Sean Colvin playing all the, over the country. I started playing all over the country and, and we would play songs for each other back and forth. And, um, you know, if he was setting the bar at, at six feet, I had to jump at six feet one, and then he'd come back with a six foot two <laughs> jump. And it was that kind of thing where, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of, we have a friendly competition, but we're also supporting each other, trying to get the most of each other. And we ended up eventually doing an album together and touring together. And we've done, we've done quite a few shows together over the years, but nothing, um, nothing around the album. We did an, a national tour and we haven't done anything like that for over a decade, but there, there may be a time when we do it again. He's uh, time to get the guys back together. All right. Let's, <laughs> let's get the band back together, man. <laughs> Yeah, see, he's fun, and I still like you know every week. Um, he he was on my show last week, and we're still like supportive of each other's endeavors and and bouncing ideas off and commiserating when things get hard and celebrating when things are great. And that's a true friend. Okay, I don't know how this question is going to land, but we'll give it a shot. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Well, you know, you just increase the size of the target by introducing yeah. <laughs> it like that. So it's going to land. Right. Uh, well, an element that appears in your music, like quite often, and I'm not talking about thematically, I'm just talking about like sonically and then also thematically is romance. Mm. And I want to know more about that aspect for you. Like your music has this romantic feel to it, but I'm interested in like, was it a choice to work that into your sounds? Like, do you consider yourself a romantic? Uh, am I a romantic? I guess I'm a romantic storyteller. That would probably be fair. If someone is going to be putting that on my gravestone, that would likely be the first thing they'd say. There are elements of social justice and, um, you know, talking about, Things outside of love, and certainly love songs are only maybe a smaller portion of what I write. They're not like every single song is about love, but it's a constant theme. But what I've learned how to do is like, I have a song called Rose Tattoo. It's about a guy that loses his job. And it, it was written in 2008 during that depression era that we went through. And he's driving home and he calls his wife and said, I just got laid off and it's a Monday. And uh, I started writing songs, love songs and things. And in the backdrop of those love songs, there were bigger issues going on. And that's how it's kind of developed over time that I'm still writing love songs, but I'm framing them in broader issues and 
and talking about people's lives outside of it and how important love is in the middle of it all. And I think in my early days, I would just write about my own experience uh, with romantic relationships. And perhaps I just ran out of relationships to write about and uh, I had to expand and go elsewhere. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're diving in as a songwriter, you're diving into this well of experience and the first few feet of it are your parents and your friendships that you have and the loves that you've had in your life. Once you run out of those songs and you've mined them all, you start looking at the bigger picture of like, well, what's the universe? What's left in the well? Oh, well, the, the well actually grows exponentially at the bottom because you start writing about the greater issue and the whole and the universal. And it's not just about your love experience, it's about how a love experience speaks to everyone in a universal way. And, um, you know, and my favorite songs are love songs. I mean, you know, even a song like Hey Jude is a love song, even though it's written to a kid. Yesterday is a love song. Um, I just love love songs, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's, so, that's what's so cool about having writers and artists around to be able to focus on those relationships and reflect because people who are not those who are not like able to express themselves. It's like, yeah, it's really like a, a great thing that writers are doing by examining that. Yeah. You're giving voice to people that can't quite get it in words, but then they take ownership of your song. They say, that's my song. They didn't write it, Yeah, but you own that piece of their life. And so they feel like they own, they own the song as well. And uh, that's the beautiful thing about the art form. I think the one thing we all have in, in common city is, is just the, we share love. Mm. Like we all die. We all are born. We all die. And we all share love and uh, with someone. And because that's a universal experience that we all do that, you know, writing those songs seems to really hit people over the head because you know, it's something we all get, go through. I'm always interested to talk to people who were kind of like banging the drum for progressive issues in the 90s when like the 90s were so weird. Um, I feel like at the time we were like, yeah, the 90s. And then you look back and kind of cringe at what was going on. But you were writing in the 90s about racism, gay issues, and also just like a lot of vulnerable stories about people who were like pretty lonely you know, your songs are sensitive and emotional. And it seems like, from my perspective, like the mainstream mentality has kind of caught up to this culture of kindness that's appeared like popularity in like normalizing therapy and meditation and mindfulness. And just like, you know, if you are depressed, maybe you could take some medication to try to help yourself instead of just like keeping your nose to the grindstone. Yeah. Um, but as someone who's been singing about feelings for so long, how have you observed people's approach to open heartedness over time? Yeah, it's we're in a different world now. And I think, um, thank God for millennials and <laughs> You know, the environment that they uh, are going to be bringing to leadership, we're still, we're, we're right at the cusp right now of kicking the last of the Playboy baby boomers out of that, that generation of where it's white male. Just got and, one, one really big one to kick out right now. Yeah, he's like <laughs> holding holding on for dear life. You can feel the like nails. The death throttle. <laughs> yeah. And aside from all the issues that he has politically and, and even personally, personality-wise, uh, it's that controlled uh, white men, you know, misogynistic and racist and all of those things that go along with that. Um, I, f I feel like the generation that came after me, I'm, I was, I'm a baby boom Generation X cusper. I was actually, I'm considered to be born in the first month of Generation X, but I, I don't really, I feel like I'm more of a boomer. Uh, based on life experience, but I'm an elder millennial. Oh, you are. Mm -hmm. is, is that a, a real thing? <laughs> yes. That's what. You, oh, wow. Yeah. An exennial is what we're called. Yeah. I think the Generation X folks are supposed to be sort of the punkers. They were like, you know, they were sort of the post disco era, and uh, the baby boomers kind of flowed into that 
disco thing. And then you guys came and the nineties, right? And I guess what's whatever that era is where you guys kind of came of age. And now you guys are hitting 40 mm-hmm. and you and the zoomers and all the, all the other generation Z and you're being raised in this really interesting thing to watch. And you can see it in the streets with, with all the protests. It's just this acceptance. Like there's this understanding. I feel like that everybody's life is going to be, we have to make it have equal value. That's almost part of the code of those generations compared to ours, where it was sort of the me generation, you know, Hmm. but it's nice to see. So, you know, all of these themes that I was singing about in the nineties, uh, were just kind of ignored. Like I had a, a song called she loves a girl, um, which I thought was the best song on that record to be a single. Is that Translucent Soul? Yeah, and Translucent Soul. And it just didn't get any traction. And then I got a song in a movie on that album and then it became the biggest song of my career. And uh, and the song I wrote about my friendship with Vance, you know, in folk circles, even they were accepted, but they weren't embraced. But nowadays, uh, it's it's like the conversation we're all having on a daily basis. In the 90s, it would be the conversation you would ignore or poo-poo. And now it's a conversation happening every time the television is turned on, every time you turn the internet on. And I think it's really hopeful and exciting. And, uh, you know, I, I write about those things when they hit my life and when I see them in a personal way. And, and then I can write about them. I, I can't just tackle a subject and write about it if I'm not hit by it personally, because then I don't have an inroad. So um, I don't often write about those things, but they do come up every year. I'm writing a few of those songs. And uh, so, you know, but nowadays those songs would probably be like, okay, well, this is, I can just watch TV and hear about this as well. It's not like you're bringing any new information. <laughs> That's not true. But it's, it is amazing though, isn't it? Like every time yeah. you turn on the TV, it's about, Wow, we're talking about racism. We're talking about sexism. We're talking about look at all this stuff. Like, yeah, the upside is maybe we're finally dealing with it. Maybe we're recognizing where it's popping out, and maybe we can be like the whack a mole Mm. and just whack it back down. So, I got to ask a question for my mom, who is so excited I'm talking to you today. (laughs) Nice. Um, So she started getting into musicians when I went to Emerson and started doing the coffee house and started uh, playing yourself and Laurie McKenna and uh, great times, all those. Yes. Incredible time. Um, So, you know, September 11th happened and then WERS coffee house started playing your song, Angel in Manhattan, like seems like four times a day we would play it you know yeah um so it became a big a big thing and it was something that i think a lot of people uh latched on to in terms of of just being so lost and scared in that time and it definitely was something that that helped so that's a song that she's really taken with um so if you would could you tell the origin of that song sure yeah and it's the odd thing about that song, it wasn't, it was, again, it's, it's kind of like a, a love song in that I was brokenhearted and my marriage was, had just broken up. And so I had to get out of Nashville where I was living at the time. And I went to New York city and, um, my manager met me in New York city and, uh, you know, duct taped me together, took me out to dinner and <laughs> we were, uh, we were sitting at this outdoor cafe, uh, on Lafayette in uh, Avenue in New York uh, called the time cafe. And, uh, I was just a, a mess sitting there and you know, just sulking and, and just in my own head and, and, and kind of in a scary way, like it, it wasn't a good time <laughs> to be me. Uh, and I finally got up and I went around, I walked around the square alone, came back, sat down at the cafe with them. And this giant bicycle wheel pulled up next to me and it was like a six foot high bicycle wheel. And I turned around and there, it was, one of those old fashioned tricycles with a huge front wheel. And there was this person on the bike. I didn't know at the the time, but his, his name was baby D. Um, and baby D had wings and, uh, cat ears. And he was hauling a symphony sized harp behind the bicycle. 
and he was a street performer. And he turned around and started playing and it was completely beautiful and, and mesmerizing. And uh, he played three songs, I think. He was a street performer, so he just was going from cafe to cafe. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I should be calling him a she or not. I'm not sure whether a transition had been made at that point. So forgive me, baby D. We've become friends since this, so I, I think oh. he, he would be cool with that. Um, so I didn't know who it was. and like, But for those 15 minutes that he was playing, my internal world disappeared. All the pain and everything that I was hyper ruminating on just disappeared. And I just got lost in the visual and the beauty of the music that was being played. And then he rode off. And, and I'm like, wow, that was amazing. And look how centered he was and how content he was and how able he was to just give me a moment like that. And like, if he can be happy, what the fuck is my problem? <laughs> like, <laughs> why, why do I perceive so many barriers in front of my life right now mm. when someone like that can, can exude that kind of courage and beauty and, and exist? So I ended up writing this song about this angel that falls to earth in New York. I don't mention Baby D. I don't mention any of that stuff, but that was the inspiration for why I wrote it. Because the wings and, you know, the whole thing. And, and the whole song is about finding faith when it's right in front of there's an angel right in front of you and still you doubt and still you doubt and still you doubt and then the hopefulness of it happening and you know the song happens on a tuesday 9 11 was on a tuesday and i think our our faith was being challenged so stations in boston yours ers and uh you know fuv in new york city and you know, all these other places started playing the song. I had no idea there was they'd see a connection, but there it went. And uh, it was a, a beautiful thing to watch unravel. I was actually on the air when it happened. Oh, wow. And I was like a 19-year-old, had to announce it on the radio, and I didn't know what to do. And I grabbed your CD and wow. put it in. And no it, kidding. I played it right after. Did you really? You were probably the mm -hmm. first person to do that. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. That that ended up kind of sweeping the country there for a, a moment. And thank you for for thinking of it. That's 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 great. I'm surprised. Like I'm surprised that like I mean clearly like if there is a God, then like that was like God guiding my hand to that CD because like yeah. think looking back, I'm like what like just a like a teenager basically. And you know? putting you on the spot. Did you have um like a printed thing that you had to read from or? No, oh. I just had a, a friend of mine who another college student called me and he was like, this thing happened and I'm writing it down. And I was like, OK, so this is in Boston. He's like, no, it's in New York, like wow. in Manhattan. And uh, I was like, OK, all right, great. Cool. Thanks. I will. Uh, I'll, I'll get it on. And then I hung up the phone. And I looked at what I'd written. I was like, oh, this is. Wow. This is wild. And that's going to be a defining moment for your generation because, you know. All of you guys are coming age of age when that moment happened in time. Hmm. And uh, yeah, we're still living in the aftermath of that, sadly. You have been playing hundreds of shows. Um, you said 5,000 shows is, is maybe like what you're at at this point, but 200 yeah. shows a year. You've been doing that for a long time. Um, we're talking about like the past and how things have changed in your life and in the world in general. How has your relationship to being a traveler changed over the years? Like what have been some emotional and practical evolutions for you in traveling? Uh, the best thing that came into my life as a traveler is a cell phone because that keeps me connected to home, to loved ones, to a GPS system when I'm lost to restaurants when I need something specific. Um, that's made life incredibly easier. And just the, the thought of a Rand McNally map unfolding like an accordion and trying to fold it back up again while you're, <laughs> while you're driving. While you're you driving. Know, yeah. You know, all that Never stuff. Never mind texting and driving. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Imagine those days. Uh, it's, it's so much easier because of that. And, and I feel so much more connected to the world and less lonely and, um, and that's been pretty remarkable. And the next evolution will be when cars are driving 
me rather than me driving cars mm. and uh, where I can work and we can have this conversation while I'm being driven to a show in Philadelphia and we can be on a highway and having this conversation, which would be, <laughs> and I wouldn't have to worry about driving, which, you know, and I'll be able to work and write and because so much of my life, the predominant time spent in my life up until this pandemic has been driving, not playing. You know, this pandemic is really changing everything for me uh, as far as how I spend my time. And I don't think I'll ever get back to touring in the same way. And, and I'm hoping that some of the, you know, I've had to reinvent myself on the internet and I'm hoping some of that will stick when life gets a little bit back to normal because I, I, I don't want to be a slave to the road anymore. Mm. I don't think it's an effective way to do it, but I do want to do shows. I still want to do 120, 130 shows a year. I just don't want to. <laughs> just I cut back a little bit. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't want it to be 170, 100, 200, you know, no thank you. I want to hear about your experience with, um, how do you say the syndrome with your hands? Is it? Oh, um, Deputrin's uh, syndrome. Deputrin's. Um, yeah. How does it affect your playing in your life in general? Well, it's, it has changed my, my playing a lot. Um, I have it in both hands now, and it's, it's something that can be fixed, but in order to fix it, it involves some pretty serious surgery, and I'd have to take a lot of time off. And, and there's always a chance that it could take something away, like your, the use of your fingers in that hand. So I've been reluctant to do it, and I'm just letting it progress. But if you, I can show you it. This is what it looks like. This hand is, is curled down, and I, this is as high as that finger can come up. Oh, wow. So when I'm playing, I have almost like this zombie finger that just constantly insists on getting oh. in the way. So when I'm holding a flat pick, the only way I can play with a flat pick is to curl my hand, which means uh, my knuckles bleed and I develop calluses in odd places like on knuckles. And uh, when I'm playing piano, it definitely is affecting the amount of play that I can do with my right hand. In guitar, I generally write now without a flat pick where it used to be the predominant way I'd play guitar. Now I play more flamenco style and uh, I do a lot of flares with my fingers and I use these three fingers on my thumb instead of using my pinky at all. And I've had to adjust and I'm hoping at, at the end of the year that I can take mm -hmm. a month or two months off and have surgery and have it repaired and, and get them back. But I'm a little fearful. I had planned surgery and then Dan Navarro, a friend of mine who's a musician, he had hand surgery and it took him out for three months and uh, he couldn't really make a living on the road as a guitar player. So he had to hire someone and that freaked me out. So I canceled the surgery. And uh, But now I'm at a point where I really probably should do something about it, at least in my right hand. Thank you for um, telling me about it. It's uh... Yeah, it's not, um, you know, because it can be repaired. It's not something that's so serious. It's not like certainly not cancer or anything like that. But um but I'm having to play around it just like I have to play around my voice. And I think this is yeah. a lot of, you know, it's, it's age. You end up losing notes off the top of your range when you hit your fifties and, and then your body starts doing other things. You know? Is it a genetic thing? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, um, usually handed down from male to male, occasionally women can pick it up too, but it's pretty rare in women. And, uh, but yeah, no one else in my family has it though, that I know of. Um, your latest album, Storyteller's Suitcase, for the first time you took on the role of producer. Um, how did taking that role and working to trust yourself change your relationship to your music? Well, it, it was going to be my vision, which is the first time that's ever happened. And I've noticed when I've recorded with other producers that there are moments on the album that are really, really beautiful and blossoming in ways that I couldn't have imagined. And sometimes the songs that are least strong end up being the strongest on the album because of what that producer brings in. And he lifts it to a place or she lifts it to a place where I didn't know it could go and I'm left breathless by it. But on the backside of that, there are moments where I, uh, I'm giving folks songs and we never quite live up to what I'm hearing in my head. And, um, I've always felt like uh, as the artist that I was in a learning seat, working with people that had Grammys on their shelves and um, players that were far better players than me, producers who are far more experienced in little, you know, aspects of how to put a recording together, like, you know, how to later layer instruments and how to use the spectrum of left and right sides and um, 
in the flavors of certain instruments that I couldn't hear that they'd bring in. But on this time around, I felt like, I, you know, I, I don't think I need to be a student right now. I need to be in the lead seat and see what would happen if I, I controlled every single moment and every instrument's choice and guided the, the musicians to play what I'm hearing. And, um, so it feels like in, in, in many ways, this is the album that I've been working on making my entire life because the message in the songs is now the message in the sound mm. and they're, they're partnering in ways that, um, they never have before for a whole record. And I think pound for pound as of the artist, uh, I think it's the best production job on an overall project that I've ever had as far as making the songs as great as they can be. I don't doubt that if I was working with another producer, we might, we might've hit a few songs out of the park in ways that are even better, but I don't think pound for pound, the whole record could have been better with someone else at the helm. I wanted to ask you a couple questions about, um, two songs on the album um, that I think, I mean, the record is wonderful, but in particular, I think the song, The Innocence and the Afterlife is just like a really lovely, vulnerable song about you explaining the death of your dad to your five-year-old daughter. How did writing that song impact your view on death and the afterlife? Uh, well, you know, like every, every song brings with it a lot of life lessons because you're dissecting some issue and or some relationship and 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 by thinking about it musically and creatively i think you you conquer it a little bit in the process you know in process it maybe get over some things and uh i was thinking of like what what were some of the most profound conversations you've ever had in your life um as a way of like chasing after song topics like meeting someone and having this thing that changed both of you, like a, a little meaning of the crossroads, so to speak. And I was thinking that like, what was the most profound conversations you've ever had that really that kind of touch and go moment where you come in one way and you leave as another person. And this conversation I had with Ella was like the first one that came up. And then I was like, how do you, how do you write about that and not belittle it? You know, mm -hmm. cause it was, a, you're talking to a five-year-old you know, but she said the things that she said in that song, because we, we aren't, her mother and I weren't forcing a religion on her. So she said, basically, she said, where did Papa go when he, where do you go when you die? And I'm like, wow, how do you explain this to a kid who needs an answer right now? Not like, you know, talk to your mother, <laughs> one of those <laughs> answers. Uh, so... I sat her down. And I said, look, this, I'm going to tell you, it depends on who you talk to. This is what people believe. I went through Buddhism and atheism and agnosticism and Catholicism and Christianity and Judaism and, and, and being a Muslim. And I went through almost all of the religions and it was like a half an hour conversation with her. And, uh, you know, I said, the Buddhists believe that you come, you can come back as a living thing, like a, an animal like a bird or, uh, you know, and if you lived a good life, you get to come back as a, as another living creature. You don't just disappear. And then she said, uh, you know, could I come back as a puppy then? And I said, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like that would be something that could actually happen. And then she said, if I came back as a puppy, would I belong to you? And then she was crying. I was crying. And, you know, that was the, the, the conversation was incredible, really, and mind, mind blowing uh, for both of us. And, uh, and then can you fit that in a three minute song and have the effect be what it was in reality, you know? And uh, so I had to take people on a journey from the death of my father to coming home and, you know, talking about missing him and the fact that his ghost was kind of on the ride home with me and I wanted to talk to him and we shared the last name. And then the only person that arrived with the same last name as me was my daughter, and she shows up in this place. And then I got to explain this thing to her, and and uh, I I love the song. I think I got lucky. Um, I, it, I didn't feel like I wrote it I, I, at all. You know, I felt like I just kind of yeah. just said what happened, and and uh, people love it. It's uh, it's certainly I think one of the most powerful songs I've ever written. And um, mm. so thank you for bringing it up. One of the most Woody Guthrie things you've ever done is write the song The Battle of Charlottesville, um, uh, which recounts the tragic events of April 12th, 2017, 
where a neo-Nazi rally took place. A person died. A lot of people got hurt. You were compelled to historically recount what happened. And I read about this. When you play it sometimes, people come up to you after the show and ask you to write from the perspective of, like, the conservative right. Right. Which... I was thinking about this question. I wrote this question this morning and then like I went through my day and was thinking about it. It's like, would you ever go up to somebody after a show and they've played like a breakup song and then you're like, well, can you write a verse for the other person? You know, it's like, like that would be kind of cool, but I definitely don't want to hear a perspective of the right when it comes to that song. But I'm just wondering like what goes through, I mean, after I give you my opinion, uh, what goes through (laughs) your mind when someone brings that up? Well, you know, what goes through my mind is that I probably sat up there and I sang a dozen songs that was really speaking to their world in a beautiful way. Probably a lot of love songs or story songs that, they could attach their life story to. And then I put a song in the set that was opposed to what their beliefs are. And instead of having an ally, suddenly I I broke the spell. And that person, rather than giving up on me, walked up to me and said, "Could could you write it from our side? And I think it was sort of an invitation, could you not lose me Hmm. by writing something that kept me in the picture. And, uh, and then, you know, the, the question is, are, am I writing for them or am I writing for myself and my own perception of what the reality and, and the good and bad is? And, but I, can, I, I knew that that person wanted to buy my music. She actually, if we're talking about the same event, um, she was buying my entire catalog on a USB stick. So I knew that I had moved her enough to spend $100 on my entire catalog, you know. Uh, but this one thing was bugging her a little bit. It was like a pebble in her shoe and she wanted, she wanted to fix it. And, uh, you know, of course I couldn't, I can't do that. And so (laughs) that's the thing is like, there are a lot of people that, you know, aren't going to have my same belief systems, but they love certain songs of mine unless it crosses the line of their beliefs. And, you know, my job isn't to please everybody. It's to really, to please my own concept of what I want to be as an artist and, uh, Mm. and write about the things I care about. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to lose people along the way, I guess it's the big lesson from all this, especially now because we're so politicized and we're so divided and, and cartoonized. Um, I'm sure I'm going to lose people every night that I play that song and, uh, but that's okay. It still needs to be sung and I'll probably gain four fans for every fan I lose. So, yeah. All right, Ellis Paul, let's do the lightning round. Okay. Uh-oh. Okay. Is this going to be a Rorschach test kind of thing where you say something and I say something fast back? Yes, but all of the questions are about you, but they're they're okay. surface level, easy, historical, fun facts. Okay. All right. Here we go. First song you learned on the guitar. Oh, okay. Uh, leaving on a jet plane. What is your karaoke song? My karaoke song. Uh, oh, what's the Journey song? The famous one. Don't uh, stop believing. Don't stop believing. Yeah, that would be my go-to. Oh my gosh, I'd love to hear that. Um, dogs or cats? Uh, cats. I have to say cats. My girlfriend would kill me if I said dogs. But <laughs> I kind of dogs. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is your coffee order? I would say I'll go mo- mocha frappuccino uh, at Starbucks with whip. Special treat. <laughs> yeah. Five dollar <laughs> drink. What is your favorite US city? Well, I love Boston. And if I didn't have thirty years in Boston, it would be Boston. I probably would say Chicago though. Just love Chicago. Don't know why. First album you bought with your own money. Oh was Billy Joel probably or, or you know what I'll say Chuck Mangione feels so good. That's probably it. 78, 79, somewhere in there. I don't know who that is. No millennials going to know. I'll have yeah. to look it up. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Um, Imagine the music that you know that I don't. <laughs> it goes both ways. What was your first concert? Oh, Ted Nugent. Oh, no, actually, oh my God. that was my first on my own. That was my first on my own high school concert, only because he was coming to Presque Isle and nobody came to Presque Isle. So 
he, he was wearing a Tarzan outfit and came in on a giant like vine. No. But my first uh, real concert with my dad was uh, Doc Severtson, who was the trumpet player from The Tonight Show, and he was uh, playing in the Midwest. And my dad took me when I was like three in third grade, got me a trumpet the next day. Wow. It's cool. Yeah. That is like cool. That. And then you played it. Yeah. Do you ever pick it up every now and then? I do. I got I got one somewhere floating around within 20 feet of me. There's a trumpet. It doesn't sound good, though. I won't put you through that. <laughs> Last book you read? The biography of Frederick Douglass. I can't remember the name. Dream collaboration. I had a friend named David Glazer who passed away about uh, a year and a half ago. My dream would be to have him working with me he, as a guitar player. He, he was... He passed away just as we were going to do the Storyteller Suitcase and would have done all of the second guitar parts, which I ended up doing on my own. Wow. That's the one collaboration I missed because I think we would have had a like a 10-year, 15-year partnership together traveling around. Other than that, I'd love to just meet with Woody Guthrie and write a song together on purpose <laughs> instead of getting one of his stray right. songs. <laughs> um, flying or Invisibility? Mm. Yeah, that's tough. I think invisibility. Just like to go anywhere I wanted. But I love flying, so it's tough. But yeah, invisibility. I could sneak in places. I could sneak in on that that Donald Trump postmaster general uh, meeting at the White House that just happened. <laughs> find it and find out whether that guy was commanded to take the postal system down. It's <laughs> a very specific request with your invisibility. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm wasting it on that stuff. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Okay, here we go. Last one. Make it count. Okay. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Mm. Okay, there's there's a tie. Um, almost anywhere in Alaska. Um, Northern Italy. And then there's a bluff in Big Sur overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And uh, that's kind of my go-to place where I just need to like think of a place in my head where everything disappears and it's just you and mm. a vista. It's this bluff overlooking the Pacific at the very top of the cliffs in Big Sur looking down. It's gorgeous. Wow. Yeah. Those are good. Thank you. You've, you've done great here. Oh, you've done great. This is so nice. Really. It's <laughs> great to have known you for so long and watch these, the evolution of you continue to grow and uh, good for you. It's awesome. Thank you. That means a lot. Yeah. I mean, you've always been a favorite of mine, so it's a real honor to have you on. Well, thank you. You guys, Basic Folk This Week was produced by Sarah Wardrop. Wow. Thanks, Sarah, for producing. Uh, Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. Basic Folk is proud to be on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can take a listen to all of the episodes of Basic Folk wherever you get podcasts. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your mom and your dad about it. Uh, you can also find it at my website, cindyhouse.net. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.